Las Vegas has a way of forgetting its history. The next big thing crowds out the skyline, and before you know it, we scarcely remember how it looked before. It's one of the reasons we're doing this show, to make sense of that fractured history. But if you take a walk through the west side of Las Vegas, you'll see a world that's a far cry from the glitz, grime, and neon of Fremont Street and the Strip, even though it's a 10-minute drive away. There you'll find Jackson Avenue. Now, it's a couple of houses and a vacant lot. But back in the 1940s, it was the beating heart of the Black community. There were nightclubs and restaurants that rival anything you'd find in Los Angeles. The Green Lantern, the Cotton Club, the Carver House. And by the mid-50s, a new arrival would quickly take center stage, the Moulin Rouge. Back in 1955, when it opened, the Moulin Rouge was the hottest ticket in town. The neon-lighted sign out front was sparkling. Cars encircled the front entry, conversation and music spilling out into the streets. It was a place where people of all stripes wanted to be. But the reason it really made a splash? It was integrated. It was a place Black people could not only perform, but they could dine, see shows, book a room, the things they couldn't do on the Strip. The West Side's initial renaissance lasted roughly 30 years, from the 1940s to the 1970s. After that, the West Side changed. Black residents could get better-paying jobs. They moved. It's something we saw in cities all over the U.S. after integration. And Las Vegas was no different. But the Moulin Rouge was a symbol of what could be. Because out of all the spots that opened during that period, it's the only establishment that rivaled a hotel or casino on the Strip. In this episode, we'll hear the brief yet brilliant history of the Moulin Rouge, what integration actually looked like for Black performers, and how West Side residents have recently taken its future into their own hands, breeding hope for a second renaissance, maybe one even better than the last. I'm Brent Holmes. This is Spectacle Las Vegas. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the Moulin Rouge opened in 1955, and like we said, it was popping. So the Moulin Rouge opens to standing room only crowds. 
And people who work there will tell you that it closed to standing room only grounds as well. Clay T. White is the director of the Oral History Research Center at UNLV. And then you are seated. And if you're going to dinner, it's in one of the most fabulous restaurants around. The waiters have on tuxedos and white gloves. In the showroom, you have a line of Black dancers doing the Watusi, and they end up on the front of Life magazine. That's right. A line of Black Moulin Rouge dancers made a 1955 cover of Life magazine. The Moulin Rouge, it was a scene. The decor was classy and ornate, like Casablanca in the 50s. It had all the glitz and glamour of any spot on the strip. Black performers like Sammy Davis Jr. and Louis Armstrong could be there, and white entertainers like Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra. And it's important to point out because Black and white people being able to eat, drink, and enjoy a show together, that was unheard of. The West Side was sort of giving the finger to the strip, like, hey, we don't need you. The Moulin Rouge had its own entertainment. The entertainers that were maybe on the Las Vegas Strip would come over, followed by the high rollers. That is taking money from the casinos on the Strip. So the community will tell you that competition ran the Moulin Rouge out of business. Competition meaning that they were taking too much of the business from the Strip. Despite its success, the Moulin Rouge didn't last long. It closed down just five months after opening. But we'll get into that later. First, I want to introduce you to Stan Armstrong. Because if it weren't for one fateful night at the Moulin Rouge, Stan, a filmmaker, may never have made it to Las Vegas, the city he's lived in for most of his life. Stan's dad came to Vegas in 1948, looking for work. He was a hustler. He got a job first in the Dunes Hotel as a powder room operator. He also worked as a cabbie, and that's where we get into the story. One night, Stan's dad was driving, shuttling people to and from the west side. So my old man would make a lot of money taking people and from, you know, the Moulin Rouge in different places. When someone jumps in the backseat of his taxi. So Cab Calloway came into the little red, his, his car. He was a famous black jazz musician. He was in movies like Hello, Dolly! and The Blues Brothers, Seriously, if you don't know who Cab Calloway is, you're just a Heidi Heidi ho. And Cab Calloway says, hey, colored boy, where are you from? Stan Sad told him he was from Shreveport, but moved out to San Francisco, lost his job at the port, and ended up here in Las Vegas. Cab Calloway says, I, I played up in San Francisco. I played with Billy Holiday. And he was talking to my dad, you know, and the, and the Moulin Rouge was packed, and he's taking my dad... I think it was to the Hacienda, one of the hotels. Stan's dad drove him to one of those hotels and dropped him off out front. But before he stepped out, Cab Calloway gave his dad something. He said, here you go, colored boy. I think he gave my dad a $50 chip from the Moulin Rouge. That seemed awful kind, but there was more. My dad went back home to the west side and he was cleaning out his car. There were $500 in chips from the Moulin Rouge. That's how my dad got us here. Can you believe that? I mean, I can't believe it. That's kind of absurd. 500 bucks back then is like 5,000 today. That's a massive tip. Who knows how many weeks or months he'd have to work to get that kind of cash? 
It's what he'd used to bring the rest of his family over on a TWA prop plane from San Francisco. Over half a century since Cab Calloway dropped that massive tip on his dad, Stan Armstrong is now a filmmaker. And many of his films have addressed issues of race in Las Vegas, including a film about the Moulin Rouge. Many legends have been associated with Las Vegas. Singer Elvis Presley made Las Vegas his spiritual home. But there's one Las Vegas legend you might not be so familiar with. The Moulin Rouge. After heavyweight champion Joe Lewis greeted you at the front door, acts like Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Armstrong, and the Platters would perform nightly. But just like New York or Los Angeles, Las Vegas became one of the many places that Black men and women migrated to in what's known as the Great Migration. Six million Black people left the South, many to get away from racial violence and Jim Crow. So the great portions of that migration were when there were jobs here. So we see that migration in 1931 in a real way because of the Hoover Dam construction. So the late 20s to the early 30s. The construction of the Hoover Dam in the 30s was a big draw for people seeking jobs during the Great Depression. But jobs working on the dam weren't afforded to everybody. But as you know, African-Americans did not qualify for those jobs on the Hoover Dam because of the color of their skin. By the 1940s, manufacturing jobs did become available for Black workers. And that's the migration when Blacks were coming for jobs at Basic Magnesium Incorporated. I grew up hearing about the magnesium plant. It's like, oh, hey, Black guys, why don't y'all work handling this toxic chemical? Sorry, do you have metal fume fever? But anyway... This plant was used by the federal government. They were building stuff for the military. Airplanes, bullets, guns, all of that. So those jobs were available for African-Americans as well as Latinx and white people. And this time, the federal government constructed housing for Blacks and for whites to live. And that's how many Black Americans ended up settling on the west side of Vegas. Many who didn't work for the federal government ended up working in service jobs in connection with the casinos on the Strip, like Stan's dad. Even though Las Vegas didn't have legal segregation, casino owners looked at this influx of Black men and women as a threat. They shut their doors to Black patrons. So to be part of this powerful, burgeoning industry in Vegas, you either had to be an employee or a performer. Always labor, never the customer. Those casinos were not integrated. So those entertainers were Black. They could not live in those casinos. They had to live in boarding houses on the west side, and they had to enter the back doors. They could not enter the front door of the Sands, the Desert Inn. They had to walk into the back door through the kitchen to get to the stages. This was segregation in America. That's the way it worked. Everyone of color during that time lived on the West Side. And it's worth noting, it was not developed like Fremont Street, which was the strip at that point. The West Side was rural. I mean, it was built on the remains of tent cities set up by black and brown laborers. People had generators. There was electricity. 
but there are so many amenities missing in that West Side community. So we see the horrors of segregation vividly when that community actually moves across the tracks and is even more isolated. It lacked the resources, the financial investment that the Strip had. A railroad and later a freeway would literally place the West Side on the other side of the tracks. But despite the circumstances, the West Side was special. Maybe you get off work at the powder room at the Sands. That night you drive back to the West Side, order a drink, and sit next to Frank Sinatra at the Moulin Rouge. And people will tell you things like, it was only because of Frank Sinatra that they integrated. Don't believe that. Please don't say that on your radio show, your television show, whatever it is. The main drag of the West Side, or what you'd call the Black Strip, was Jackson Avenue. Or some, like Stan, call it Jackson Street. Jackson Street was here 10 years before the Moulin Rouge. So Black people were going to Jackson Street just, you know, they, I mean, they, they would have to have to get shit from white people on the Strip. So they come to Jackson Street and party. It had nice hotels like The Cove and Carver, which had pools for lounging, taverns, and clubs. Performers like Sammy Davis Jr. would perform on the Strip and then go back to the West Side to stay. It was like going to church on Sunday mornings. It's what you did. Friday nights and Saturday nights, you went dancing on Jackson Avenue. Jackson Avenue became the center of Black cultural life in Las Vegas. You could go to Jackson Street, you could smell weed all over the place because the guys would be playing the blues. You go to Johnson's Malt Shop, the Mom's Kitchen. Sammy Davis Jr. used to hang out there. By the time the Moulin Rouge opened in 1955, there had been at least three decades of entertainment and nightlife on the West Side. But just months after its opening, the Moulin Rouge shut down. It's still unclear exactly why. So we've heard several theories about why it went out of business, that some of the subcontractors were not paid. Other people said it was the competition and that that's why it went out of business. One theory is that the Strip opened its doors to non-white patrons, making Moulin Rouge clientele plummet. Clayty says there were also larger economic forces at work. You have to remember that at that time, there was a downturn in the economy here. And not only the Moulin Rouge in 1955 had problems, the Dunes had problems and the Royal Nevada had problems. But those two casinos were both helped out by other casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. The Moulin Rouge was not helped. The property has had a string of owners and projects since its closure in 1955, but they never took off. It was just never the same. It was never reopened to the capacity that it had been in the 1950s. Even though it wasn't open, the building remained there for decades, reminding everyone who passed by of what once was. So homeless people were using it, and I don't blame them. It was someplace you could be inside. So there were several fires there. And that last fire, something like 2014, I believe, caused then it had to be torn down. Uh, the rest of it was just dangerous to leave it there like that. So the city had to tear it down. 
And let's be clear, the Moulin Rouge was not the nail in the coffin for the West Side. It continued on with clubs, bars, and hotels that were thriving until the 1970s. What really changed the West Side was integration, when the Strip finally welcomed Black patrons. African-Americans are now allowed to go into casinos, restaurants, go to entertainment, able to gamble, and all of that. But it wasn't until 1971 that African-Americans began to be able to get those jobs that allow the income for them to move all over the city. Now Black residents were eligible for well-paying jobs, like cocktail waitresses, car dealers, and bartenders. So, of course, those people with that kind of income then want to be in areas of the city with the amenities. So people began to move out of the Black community. Businesses began to close, and we see some closures begin to happen. And there was a drug crisis across the country. It was a compounding of all these factors that caused the West Side to go into decline from the 1980s until now. But before we look at where the West Side is today and what it all means, I want you to meet a man who had a front row seat to the integration of the Strip in the 60s. He experienced firsthand the pressures, the traumas, and the triumph of being a Black performer through this decade in the face of overwhelming racism and adversity. He's a Black entertainer who performed and mingled with the great musicians of the time. That's next. Back in the 60s, Sonny Charles performed in hotels and casinos on the Strip. He was in a doo-wop band called The Checkmates. They were a mixed group, some Black performers, some white which made them stand out. So it was very unusual to see an interracial band, a mixed band. We were all such good friends. There was no conflicts going on with that. And the kids didn't care that much about the racial makeup of our act. This whole thing would have shocked little Sonny. I mean, the singing part wouldn't. He grew up in Arkansas. His parents sharecroppers, and he was always on stage, you know, mentally. They would leave me on the wagon. And they would work the fields because I was too young to do anything. And I would sing to the cornstalks and all that kind of stuff. I put on my own shows. It was the mid-60s when the Checkmates got their first Vegas gig at a place called the Pussycat Go-Go. It was big back then. They had go-go dancers in cages on both sides of the stage. And the best name of any nightclub, am I right? Hey, what are you doing tonight? Pussycat Go-Go? They were playing to packed houses. Things seemed to be looking up for them. And one night, they had a special guest in the audience. Frank Sinatra came in to see us. We were doing New Year's Eve at this Pussycat Go-Go, and all of a sudden, the owner of the place came and said, pack up your stuff, you're going to the Sands Hotel. Frank Sinatra wants you to do his New Year's Eve party. And we said, well, the place is packed. He goes, no, you don't understand. Frank Sinatra wants you to come over, so you're going over. So we went over and we did the show and we got hired at the Sands. Sonny and the Checkmates were living the dream. It was really amazing to be a star in Las Vegas. But that dream, what happened on stage and the success Sonny and his band achieved, paled in comparison to the racism Black performers had to endure at the time. It was so tight that they didn't want any, any inclusion. It was tight, he says. Like, no room to breathe, strict boundaries. 
they wanted to keep it separate, you know. Even as professional entertainers playing in big showrooms like the Sands, they couldn't escape the racism. The bosses pulled us in the room and, you know, we're still in, in a racial act. Said, so now, you fellas, you got to know, the white girls are going to be liking you guys. But you don't do it here. So essentially, the bosses are like, don't be flirting with the white women. God, a tale as old as time. Sonny is one of those performers who tried to push aside the racism and discrimination he'd experienced in that era. He was leading up an integrated band. He'd experienced quite the success for the time. I never let that bother me. I never let somebody tell me how I'm going to live. But I think you have to make up your mind as if you're going to let some other person's ideals control your life. And uh, I just want to let it happen with me. To be a Black person in predominantly white spaces, back then and now, means attempting to preserve one's sense of self by any means necessary. The last thing you want to be is an angry Black man or woman, especially if you are one of the only Black people in the room. And mind you, back then, it didn't matter how famous you were. You could be Nat King Cole and still receive the same brutal treatment from promoters and casino owners. In 1960, Nat King Cole was the first Black person to sit in a showroom and watch what they called the Lido show. And the only reason that happened was because they told him, you can go stand backstage and watch the show. And the kids in the show says, no show unless he's sitting front row in the King's booth. But everybody loved Nat King Cole. And they all came over and they gave him, they wanted autographs and pictures with him and everything. Also, notable detail here, Nat King Cole was a world-class and internationally renowned performer at this point. A singer, a jazz pianist, a transcendent generational star. And I want to emphasize how transgressive a band like the Checkmates was. At the time, there was nothing quite like them. A racially integrated band performing to mostly white audiences on the strip? By the mid-60s, when Sonny would stare out into the audience... He could spot some melanin, but... The audiences were mixed. Only to the extent was there was a little corner where Black people could sit. Now, you could get up and dance on the dance floor together. You could eat in the restaurants together. You could do everything. But you couldn't sit together, which is stupid. I never understood it. But the checkmates hit a breaking point. One night, when they're about to get on stage, they hear that Black people are waiting to get in, standing in the pouring rain, even though the house has tons of empty seats. It came down to the point where we refused to play. So no show unless you fix this. And so they let people in. And these people worked together in the casinos all the time. They knew each other. So it was the owner was afraid it was going to be a big backlash from it. But it wasn't. Everybody got along fine with it. Now, we're not going to credit Frank Sinatra for integrating the strip. We're taking no clay tea. But Sonny did say that having big-name white performers in their corner did help. When Sinatra more or less said, these are good guys, that's when everything loosened up for us here in town. Sammy Davis had to stay over in the black area, and he'd come and perform his shows and then go back over and stay in someone's house. And he couldn't stay in the hotel rooms until Frank Sinatra says they formed the Rat Pack. And Sinatra says... If he's not staying here, I'm not staying here, and I'm not playing here. 
Sunny is of an era where your professional success relied on not being explicit about your identity. Sunny's mere existence within these spaces becomes, in a way, a form of activism. If you grow up with racism, you don't wear it. You know what I mean? You just don't wear it. And for Sonny and the Checkmates, they were about making music. They were a band who happened to be interracial. You know, that was pretty much the novelty part of our act, was the fact that here's this interracial band, and these guys are really all buddies. You know, 10 years together, and, and we were like brothers. And it was so good because all of a sudden, our audiences were mixed. So we were in this situation where I, I remember a one reporter asking us and the thing goes, you know, white people love you guys. And we were saying like, I thought everybody liked us. <laughs> white people love you guys. Oh, then you matter. That's America for you. Constantly living for the approval of the white gaze. Sonny would go on to have a long and successful career as a performer. One highlight that sticks out to him was singing Black Pearl which became a sort of anthem for Black soldiers during the Vietnam War, thinking of their Black girlfriends and wives back home. Black pearl, precious little girl, let me put you up where you belong. Black pearl. <laughs> a couple of years after Sonny sang Black Pearl, Vegas began to integrate in a more formal way. And the West Side was no longer the hub of Black life in the city it once was. But now... We can look on the bright side, I believe, because now the city is trying to redeem itself in that area with that population. The West Side isn't really Black anymore. Historically, yes, but now it's as diverse as Vegas itself. It has Latinx families, Asian families, white families. People want to live there because it's close to downtown. I'd love to live there myself. But unlike gentrification we're seeing happen in other historic Black neighborhoods, the West Side's history isn't being paved over. The city has spent time meeting with the community, listening to their needs. There's been renovations to schools, new libraries. There's the Black radio station, a new park. It is becoming this vibrant hub again. They're already talking about an African-American museum. It's going to be the place to be. It's going to be that cosmopolitan part of our city with art and restaurants and shops. There's a sense of hopefulness. The possibility of someone other than a white person being mayor of the city is very possible right now. If now we can come along with somebody who understands what it is to be the other and not to be treated equitably, if we now get that person in who's wise enough to now treat everybody like we should all be treated, then we have a chance. We have the chance of being this renaissance that is just amazing. And there's a feeling that this second act, it could be even stronger than the first. Las Vegas has always been a frighteningly accurate template for American life. A place that constantly is in search of renewal or the next quick buck. But a big part of this show 
is exploring what is lost in a place that has such a scorched earth approach to culture. And from where I'm standing, there's value in putting a stake in the ground, remembering where we've been, so we can hopefully do a better job today and in the future. And next time on Spectacle, we're gonna dive deep into another incidence of alleged cultural erasure. Featuring Hunter S. Thompson's masterpiece of gonzo journalism, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. When Oscar read the book, he was shocked by this and he was upset. And he wrote a letter to uh, the editor of Rolling Stone Books, Straight Arrow, a guy called Alan Winsler. And he wrote, my God, Hunter has stolen my soul. He has taken my best lines and has used me. He has wrung me dry for material. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. It was produced by Navani Otero. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Sue. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you by Flirting with White Women.